Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 15. The three-part religious trial before Annas and then Caiaphas... And finally, the gathered Sanhedrin was over. And after completely ignoring several of their own illegal procedures, the keepers of the law had finally condemned Jesus to death with the charge of blasphemy. Jesus had unabashedly claimed to be both the Messiah and God in human flesh. But now their problem of getting rid of Jesus for good got even larger. The Romans did not allow anyone to put Jesus to death besides themselves. Only one person in Jerusalem had that power, and that was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So the Jewish religious leaders had to somehow convince Pilate that Jesus should be executed and that was not going to be an easy task. As we begin this morning, we must step back and remember from long ago at the beginning of the book who Mark was specifically writing this gospel to and why. Mark's gospel was especially intended for Romans, for people who had not been raised as Jews. And as we've gone through the book, we've noted several times how Mark has at times explained some of the Jewish customs and traditions. His emphasis is that Jesus is the king. And in the first half of the book, Jesus is convincing his disciples that he is the king, that God has actually come to us. And in the second half of this book, Jesus predicts and shows that he is a suffering king. Most people had no clue about this. This is important for us to realize because the part of the early church that was actually in the city of Rome was an authentic, countercultural, embattled, and persecuted church, which faced much suffering. When we've got to ask the question, do we, do we understand this? The bride of Christ, by its very nature, is countercultural. And this means that what the church believes and how we in the church should live runs counter to or against the beliefs, the values, habits, and manners of life of the society we are are a part of. Part of the angst that we've been feeling now for decades is the simple fact that it's a lot easier to live as Christians when We are not so counter to the culture. When the culture was a little more aligned that way. 
In fact, we're asked to pray that way even in places by Paul. But we know that those things are not the way they used to be. Our beliefs, values, habits, and manners of life are not just different from our cultures. Our beliefs, values, habits, and manners of life point to the God that the majority of people in our culture do not want to have anything to do with anymore. It's a fact. That means that our own society will as a whole think it's a better and better idea not just to disagree with us and just think we're a little weird, but rather to actually persecute and get rid of those who disagree with it. In other words, we are getting closer and closer to experiencing what the church in Rome already was experiencing when Mark wrote this gospel. And unless you're just asleep already, you should realize, oh, this applies to me, to us, in ways that maybe I haven't really thought about before. One of the reasons Mark recorded these events of Jesus' rejection was to encourage that church in Rome in their specific trials and to encourage every other church facing various degrees of persecution and suffering down through history and to prepare every church that hasn't gotten quite to this degree yet to be ready and to be willing to stand for Christ the way we should. As we've already seen, the first kind of rejection that Jesus faced was an envy-motivated rejection that was kind of hooked into the religious leaders especially. Jesus was a threat to these guys' power. They saw the people's reaction to his teachings and miracles. Jesus constantly corrected their own interpretations of the Old Testament. But the people, and they especially, wanted a superhero to get rid of the Romans. And Jesus also did what? He exposed their sin. Especially the leadership's greed and lust for power and influence. Literally silencing them many times in the face of all their arguments with their top guns that they'd send to ask him a particular question. Silenced them. The envy and the hatred grew. So much so that early on they decided they needed to get rid of Jesus. If you're able, would you please stand as I read the first 20 verses from Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 
As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That was the third religious trial, by the way. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pilate ruled over one of the most difficult provinces in the Roman Empire and was appointed by Tiberius Caesar in that, to that position in 26 AD. He was cold, he was proud, cruel, superstitious, he and his wife both, and was only concerned with his own political position. He hated the Jews, and the feeling was mutual. He despised Jewish laws and traditions, and he didn't hide his disgust. One time he ordered his soldiers who were marching into Jerusalem to carry idolatrous banners, which was completely against Jewish beliefs, because on these flags or banners, the image of the emperor was the main attraction. 
The Jews appealed angrily to Pilate to remove the idolatrous emblems, and Pilate threatened to put the complainers to death. The Jews called his bluff by showing no fear of death, and Pilate backed down that time. He stole Jewish money dedicated to God, called Corban, to build an aqueduct, which caused all kinds of riots. Pilate sent in his soldiers, and he killed many, many. Eusebius records that he took his own life after being removed from his position, finally for ordering an attack on some Samaritans gathered at Mount Gerizim on a religious quest. This is just so you can get a feel of who this man was. The representatives of the Sanhedrin brought Jesus bound up before Pilate. Their own charge of blasphemy would mean nothing, absolutely nothing to the Roman authorities. That was a religious kind of um, thing, so they weren't going to listen to that. The leaders knew that, so they tweaked the charge to get a response from Pilate. Luke tells us in his gospel that the Jewish leaders accused Jesus this way in Luke 23. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ. Remember, Christ means what? Messiah, a king. Words are important. I'm sure you recognize very easily what they are saying. Did Jesus mislead the nation and forbid them from giving tribute to Caesar? Absolutely not. Remember the coin that they tried to trick him with? Give to Caesar, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Pilate is curious about this charge, and he's pretty shrewd. So he asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, You've said so. But the tone and the impersonal wording that Jesus said in his answer let Pilate know that Jesus was conveying the idea of, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king you're thinking about or they're thinking about. And that's really important to understand here. And he makes sure of this later when he talks to Pilate behind closed doors, more or less, that he is a king, but he's not the kind of king that they're talking about. And in verse 3 here in Mark, we read, And the chief priests accused him of many things. In other words, the religious leaders saw in this exchange between Pilate and Jesus that Pilate was somewhat skeptical of their charges. So what do you do when you're skeptical, skeptical and you're desperate? Man, immediately you just start laying on everything you can think of. So they ramped up their executions. And then Luke tells us in Luke 23 that um, the Jewish leaders were so urgent that 
They said that he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And you go, well, what's the big deal about that? Did you hear what Barabbas was in prison for? He murdered somebody in the what? The insurrection. This was normal operating procedure in Israel during Roman domination and rule. That's why this was the most hated place in the world to be assigned to be a governor. It was constant. There was all sorts of groups that were trying to get rid of the Romans. So stirring up the people would ring some bells quickly in the governor's hearing. And Pilate again asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Why was he amazed? Jesus won't say anything to the chief priests and elders' many accusations. He's silent. And that amazes Pilate because what would he be used to as the chief prosecutor governor in a land that the Romans are ruling? He would be used to loud and desperate pleas and protests in the face of anything they were charged with. Not somebody being silent and not even dignifying the charge. So Pilate is more than skeptical now. He knows that Jesus is innocent, and he also knows that he is no threat to Roman rule. The other Gospels fill in a lot of the details, or at least some of them. Luke tells us that Pilate then sent Jesus to Herod. That would be right between verses, right about 5 and 6 in Mark's Gospel. He doesn't mention this. But the other Gospel do. Sent to Herod where Jesus was completely silent in the face of, once again, hate-filled accusations and mocking. This is the same Herod who had had John the Baptist killed. And Herod was mainly wanting to see him. It even says this in one of the texts. Because he was wanting to see Jesus perform some kind of miracle. That was the main reason. Again, Jesus in the majesty of being God in human flesh stood there and took it and didn't dignify any of this interest or charge. So Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, having found nothing deserving of death in him. Now we don't know how Pilate felt when he saw the Jewish leaders and soldiers bringing Jesus back from Herod, but he probably wasn't too pleased. He saw a political nightmare, did he not? Pilate's plan had been to rid himself of having to face the issue of judging Jesus. And he wanted to score some political points with Herod at the same time. And here he sees Herod sending him back. But Pilate, we read in Luke 23, and Herod did become friends that day. Doesn't surprise us. 
John records that Pilate took Jesus back into the palace and questioned him personally. Why is that important? Because the high and mighty Jewish leaders didn't want to be contaminated and go into the Roman headquarter palace. Yes, hypocrisy is so large in this whole scenario. The Jewish leaders were outside because they didn't want to contaminate themselves. And this is where Jesus told him that my kingdom is not of this world and that his purpose in coming into the world was actually to bear witness to the truth that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what did Pilate reply? This is in John 18. Pilate replied, what is truth? And he probably said it just like that because he was going, what am I going to do with you? I know you're not guilty of their charges. But do you hear these people out here? If they riot and it looks like it's coming, I'm going to be history. I'm going to be history. That's all he cares about. So Pilate saw this for what it was. After all, he was very much like the Jewish leaders he despised. John then tells us that Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now this is a huge mess. And it's getting close to another fiasco because the Jewish leadership is past being incensed. They are enraged. But Pilate suddenly has an idea that he thinks might actually work. To make use of the Jewish tradition at Passover of granting amnesty to a prisoner of the people's choice. He had in his custody a notorious criminal, a murderer, and a thief named Barabbas. <laughs> Competition right here. He was thinking, surely the people would choose to grant amnesty to Jesus, and this would solve all of his problems. But as we read in verses 9 through 15, first part of 15, exactly the opposite happened. There we read, and he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was, did you catch that, out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Can you picture that? Everybody who was anybody or everybody who could was at this place in Jerusalem, as packed as it was for Passover. And the religious leaders whipped everybody up into a frenzy. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Do we need to say? Yes, we do. Pilate didn't expect that to happen. The riotous crowd was almost out of control. Pilate was going to have to condemn the innocent Jesus. And then the phrase that ought to just stick out. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. He had one more idea, his last card that he could play that just might make the crowd more sympathetic to Jesus' plight. He had Jesus scourged. We need to understand the horror of this Roman version of torture. Scourging was done with a specially designed whip consisting usually of nine straps of leather with a ball of leather at the end of each strap that was embedded with pieces of bone, lead, and chain. And I was going to read you a couple of excerpts from Eusebius and Josephus that describe what they recorded happened to Jesus' body, but I think I better skip that and just say this. Unlike what we see, or Hollywood shows, or churches even show that have this depicted somewhere, Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. Listen to this prophecy that actually describes it in Isaiah 52, verse 14, from the Christian Standard Bible about God's anointed servant, the Messiah. Just as many were appalled at you, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. Then, on top of the scourging, Mark tells us the other ways that the soldiers berated and humiliated Jesus. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. That's up to 600 men. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. This was when Pilate came out and said, Behold the man. And quite frankly, Most of us would have been unable to bear the sight without being overwhelmed with horror, fainting, 
and even throwing up. These descriptions of what that kind of torture did to somebody are absolutely horrid. And Jesus bore them without a word, without any yells as far as condemning a man, no cursing, absolutely nothing. This was when Pilate came out and said, Behold the man. What did Pilate think would happen? His last card, he was really saying by that, Behold this poor creature, have pity on him. He thought that they might have some ounce of humanity and empathy and not want him crucified. It didn't work. From here on, Pilate is desperately actually trying to release Jesus. But instead of any empathy or pity from this rabid crowd, they cried out this, which we learn from John 19. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You can imagine how Pilate felt strangled. R. Kent Hughes says at this point that at this, Pontius Pilate, the one man who could have stopped it all, caved in. Why? Because his social position was everything to him. He had done his duty and he was not going to take the chance of sacrificing his career for Jesus. We need to take a breath. And as we do, let me ask this. How many down through the ages and now have gone only so far with Christ and then stepped back because of somebody else's sarcastic smile or leering silence or laughter at what you say you hold to be true? How many of us are even now trying to frame our own identity in what we think other people will respect, admire, or want for themselves? How many professing believers actually care more about what other people think than what the Lord God Almighty thinks? What is your identity? Is it, I'm a Christian belonging to Jesus Christ, living to know and serve him? Or is it what everybody else's seems to be in our culture now? I am whoever I want to be, depending on what I'll get out of it, at the time so you become actually what you desire the most to be and you'll do anything to pay homage to that idol these are why our times are so dangerous 
always has been this way. Never a time in history when there wasn't this kind of pressure. But oh, how great it is in our day. Paul writes, maybe these words will mean a little more in this context. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Now remember the key phrase in verse 15 of Mark 15 here. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Summing up so far, so far we've seen Jesus faced an envy-motivated rejection, mainly from the religious leaders. Jesus is taken to Pilate, and he's faced a second kind of rejection. What's that? Socially-motivated rejection. People who reject someone or a believer because in their social circle... You can't do that. Let me ask another question. How is the church compromised with this kind of rejection? You need to know. How is the attack coming actually in and through the church in many cases now? Well, we'll just become more like the world we live in. And then there's the great excuse, because then we can share the gospel and people will come. So when somebody comes through that door, they come into a place that looks, sounds, feels, and acts like a concert during the Super Bowl complete with, you can get anything you want if you just do this or have this amount of faith. I don't know about you, but I think that breaks our Lord's heart because what somebody should see, feel, hear, and sense when they walk in through the door of the bride of Christ and see that his people gathered is him lifted up Honored, prayed to, sung to. His word being lifted up so that they go away and go, those people, they, they, and they almost don't even know what to say because they see a group of sinners who have hope. And who are committed to a God that they actually look like they know, but whom they reverence 
with honor and praise. So two kinds of rejection so far that Jesus faced, envy and socially motivated. But we also see another kind of almost a subset of the religious thing, a religiously motivated rejection. And one of the obvious observations of this whole volatile situation at Jesus' trials is that the leaders were not only envious of Jesus, but also disappointed in what Jesus' claim to be the Messiah actually meant. If he was who he claimed to be, and there was no real way they could deny his demonstrations of authority and power, the religious leaders had completely missed the whole point of the scripture. They were tasked with knowing and applying. In other words, they came face to face with the Messiah. They'd been crying out to for hundreds of years for God to send. And when he was right before them, they did not recognize him. Because he was not what they expected. The false expectation was easily transferred to this crowd. Just because the leader set the tone and the crowd blindly followed, which is what crowds do. Oh, save us from that. So the question for us is, on a very personal level, and as a church, have you and I ever been disappointed with Jesus or with God? Have you and I ever expected him to act in a certain way only to find out that he did not do what we wanted? When we wanted. The way we wanted. And he will not. These people were disappointed because his inaction to use his authority and power, hey, They saw him do what? Feed thousands of people out of nothing? His disciples saw him calm a storm on the Sea of Galilee? They saw him raise the dead and really heal people that were desperately sick and diseased? They saw him silence the Pharisees who could argue anybody into the grave, but they saw them cower away with no answer to him. They knew he had the power and authority. And what did they expect him to do with it? Get rid of the Romans. And God's looking down on all this from his throne and saying, That's not the point. That is so small compared to my plan and my redemptive purposes.
So what are we expecting God to be and do for us? That might not be anything near what he wants to do. These people wanted Jesus to use his authority and power to overthrow Roman rule and reestablish Israel as the jewel of the earth that they believed they were. Know any Americans like that? Israel's whole history was full of similar, similar misunderstandings. And one of the many places their misguided priorities were rebuked, many places, is a passage like Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, which sums it up. My thoughts are not your thoughts, which is why he gave us a book full of his. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's another kind of rejection that Jesus faced. What about the rejection from the soldiers? They had no real vested interest in Jesus, yet almost all of them fully participated in all the ugliness. True? This could be called Jesus facing a fourth kind of rejection, a circumstantial, almost irrationally motivated rejection. What is that? Mark told us a whole battalion of Roman soldiers took part in the savagery and the beating and mockery, etc., of Jesus. This was nothing less than almost a gang mentality, except it was organized soldiers under orders. It was unblinking torture. Why? Because savagery begets savagery we've all seen it hopefully not personally but it's terrifying somebody lets loose wrath is let loose and everybody else that has that in their heart joins in and they may not even know what's going on but they're in on it Remember the persecuted church that Mark was mainly writing to in Rome? How did what Jesus go through encourage them? How did this book encourage them? How did this section of the book encourage them? Well, let's go through it. Those that rejected Jesus because of envy did so because his life provided a mirror that showed how sinful their souls were. Those that rejected Jesus because of social concerns did so because to identify with Christ may be dangerous to your social status. We need to understand this because 
We don't just need to walk blindly in our world and never expect any of this to hit us. A lot of us, probably a lot of it has never hit you. But that doesn't mean it won't. And it doesn't mean your kids won't see it. Thirdly, those that rejected Jesus because of religiosity wanted Jesus to operate by doing what? Things man's way. And those that rejected Jesus because it was just enjoyable to their evil hearts to put someone else in pain were really just along for the evil ride. Envy, social concerns, religiosity, and just because it's enjoyable to be mean. Maybe we ought to ask, which form of rejection would you be most tempted to cave under? You know which one. The second one, Pilate's social concerns, the fear of man. Jesus' mission of redemption required him to be rejected. Required him to be rejected and executed which God turned into the acceptable atoning sacrifice for our sin. That is amazing. He willingly owned this mission and purpose for God's glory and our good. He made us alive when we belong to Him, and He's making us more and more like Himself. But this does not mean that we should expect the life we have now to be what he promises our life to be in glory later. There will be tastes, there will be portions, there will be great joy in the midst of it, but we aren't there yet, folks. Jesus' church is aptly described as what? His bride is held firmly and lovingly with a view to the eternal joy and peace and really inexpressible fulfillment in knowing our Creator. But our time on this earth is preparation for that reality. You just sang those words. Did you hear them? Genuine Christians in their churches down through history have always experienced in some form or degree rejection from the world they live in, just as Jesus was rejected. If we follow Christ, it makes no sense to think that we won't experience some degree of what the only perfect man who ever lived had happened to him. Peter, the other disciples found this out, did they not? Following Jesus means following close enough that what happens to him happens to you to some degree. So each one of us needs to ask whether we are really committed to serve the risen Lord who loved us enough to come to this earth 
and do what was necessary to save us from our sin. You know, the scriptures are clear. Let me just read three of them. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not everybody who lives everywhere else but the panhandle will be persecuted, but we won't. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. Peter gets it the best here. He sums this up. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that what we do? Oh, wow, my life is over. I've got this trial and this trial and this trial and this trial. I didn't sign up for this. What in the world is happening? Do you hear, Peter? Don't be surprised. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We as a church and as individuals and families will never be alone without the one who came to save us. We need to hear some facts. He knows what he's doing in our day. He holds us securely in his hands. He reigns even now. Nothing and no one in this life can separate us from his love and abiding presence. These are promises from the one who bought us with the price of his own blood. We serve the one who faced the most unjust series of trials in human history. Completely innocent, perfect, no bad responses in the face of the charges, the beatings, everything that happened. He's the one that has us. He understands, and he never sinned during that whole process. He displayed a majesty and fortitude that became the target of small minds and evil hearts. He kept true to his purpose of living a perfect life demanded of us. Why? Look around. That's why mainly because he wanted to honor and glory his, and give glory to his father, but he died to seal the purchase of those he came to save. You me. Some were amazed at how he responded. Can you think of them? Pilate was, but he loved his position more than doing what was right. His disciples would be, Right now, they were frozen by their fear and their lack of understanding, most of them hiding. We'll see one of the soldiers who will execute him 
recognized the stark difference of who he was, and his quote goes down in history as he looked at Jesus and he declared, Surely this was the Son of God. And we'll see another man, as he was dying on his own cross, come to believe in Christ. And we'll see Jesus, even while on the cross, bring this man to the everlasting life that he was about to enter. And the list goes on and on and on and on. I hope we're all properly amazed by our Savior. If so, we will humble ourselves, we will confess our sin, and give ourselves completely to him in genuine faith. And we will do it right now. Why wait? To know him and love him and serve him is to know your reason for living and breathing. And if you're still breathing right now, you've got to ask the question, why has he preserved my life? Let's pray. Oh God, this portion of scripture, it's like everything in the Bible leads up to this. Thank you. Thank you for such a picture that gives us more insight and understanding and seeing your heart, seeing Jesus' faithfulness and his love for us and what he was willing to go through. Oh God, unfreeze our hearts so that we know your presence How can we reject a man who did this for us? You can open our hearts. You can pour your mercy and grace out. And we ask for that upon every single one of us this day. To love you more deeply. To serve you more. To be committed to you. Knowing that we'll continue to fail knowing that your blood covers our failure as we seek to struggle to apply the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to understand you walk and to trust you and depend on you in ways we never have. Make us more and more consistent. Thank you that your purposes will be fulfilled. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now, listen. See if this sounds familiar. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Oh, be our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Amen. You're dismissed.